0: This is the fourth day of this April 2021 five day online session. Fourth day, last full day of session. We'll resume reading from where we left off yesterday in the book Zen Dawn, Early Zen Texts from Dunhuang. The, uh, Corner of the Gobi Desert. I can't resist. Uh, I just just popped up. Uh, the the, two, the the couple I was traveling with uh, uh, that on that trip when we went to the Dunhuang caves, uh, there had been some kind of a, uh, a mix-up with uh, our travel plans, and we faced the the, the only way we could. Fine to get to the Dunhuang caves was by taxi, so we took an eight-hour taxi ride across the corner of the Gobi Desert. It's just like a, a, the the uh, environment was right out of Lawrence of Arabia. Just vast sand dunes, not a not so much as a blade of grass um, anywhere to be seen. Although we did see some camels, um, giant, seemed like giant camels, uh, wild I think wild. That eight-hour cab ride cost us a hundred dollars, and that would it would cost a lot more today. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to this uh, this. These teachings of uh, Gunabhadra, uh, who came before Bodhidharma, his dates are 424, um, well, he, he, he went to China, Gunabhadra went to China uh, between uh, the years 424 and 4, no excuse me, those are the years of that, that era of China the Yuanjia years. So sometime during those 30 years, uh, this predecessor of uh, Bodhidharma went to China. Bodhidharma himself uh, went uh, sometime in the next century after that. So we left off yesterday um, talking about where Gunabhadra was warning about misuse of meditation, and using it for uh, paltry um, reasons to to effect m- magic or weird states. This is what is uh, uh, so remarkable about Zen meditation as compared to most other kinds of meditation. Most, most kinds of meditation, we're trying to create an effect. We're trying to make something happen. I think of, uh, of meta-meditation, another form of Buddhist meditation, where we're trying to radiate loving-kindness to generate it, uh, directed toward this person or that person or oneself. In Zen, really, in its purest, we're not trying to create an effect. We're, we're really being with what is. Uh, the breath always is. And just being the breath without any idea of changing anything. A koan is a little different. There we're, we're trying to reach complete unity with the koan, but strictly speaking, that's also already the case. We're already one with the koan. There's nothing we're apart from. When we're really absorbed in our practice, whatever it is, whether it's a koan or breath practice, shikantaza, We're in a a realm of non-doing, non-creating of an effect, non-causality. There's that line in the uh, Hakawan chant, now the gate to the oneness of cause and effect, the oneness of cause and effect, beyond cause and effect, This is the the purest type of sitting. And it's also different, of course, from petitionary prayer, where we're uh, praying to God, let's say, or bodhisattvas to help us or help others. Again, to effect some change. Then he quotes the Lankavatara Sutra: "The mind of the Buddhas is supreme. When the Dharma is bestowed in our teaching, where deluded states of mind do not arise, it is this." Yeah, that's more or less what I was just saying. Uh, In other words, it is our our natural state. Natural with a capital N. It is our nature uh, to be, you know, in the deepest sense, to be free of delusion. And so, when those, when deluded states don't arise, it is this, just this. That there, he was quoting the Lankavatara Sutra, and then he continues. This dharma surpasses the three vehicles and goes beyond the ten stages. I don't think we need to break that down. It's beyond discrimination. Ultimately, the fruit of enlightenment can only be known for oneself with mind silent. No minded. No minded, we nurture the spirit. Without thought, we pacify the body. I hate that word pacify. There, too, it, it just shows the, the limitations of, of words. Pacify sounds so passive. Um uh, and here too, as if we're we're trying to pacify the body it's 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 different it's without thought the mind comes to rest the mind body comes to rest we don't have a an agenda of pacifying anything we don't that just that just complicates things it happens when we can be detached from the thoughts that arise in the mind he continues without preoccupations we sit in purity preserving the fundamental and returning to the real without preoccupations. How many of us can sit and not be preoccupied by one thing or another. We can all though, we can all reach that point where we're free of preoccupations. At least temporarily. That's all that's really necessary to see beyond preoccupations, thoughts, concepts. He continues Our Dharma is secret and silent, it is not transmitted by common fools of shallow consciousness. Only people rich in merit and virtue can receive it and carry it out. Well, if this Dharma is secret, it's an open secret. It's all all around us. It is us. Everything revealed. It's all revealed. Nothing is concealed. When a monk asked Zen Master Zhao Zhou, Is there any Dharma in the distant mountains where no one is present? He said, Large rocks are large, small rocks are small. There it is the law, the truth, the Dharma. not dogma beyond even doctrine when he says only people rich in merit and virtue can receive it and carry it out this is the <clears throat> teaching of of uh karma that to have found this dharma uh, is the result of uh, having having uh, created a lot of a lot of good karma somewhere along the line you know this idea of merit uh, virtue uh, merit is very very basic uh, belief uh, in, in certainly in, in popular Buddhism that uh, by doing good deeds by in the old days it was supporting the monasteries supporting the monks and the nuns uh, we uh, acquire merit good karma by helping others we acquire merit. Uh, No one has ever been able to quantify that or prove it even. Uh, We have uh, this famous exchange between the emperor of China when he met the great Bodhidharma and uh, the Emperor was feeling pretty proud of himself for having supported all these monasteries and, and and built monasteries and supported the monks and and he was fishing for compliments where uh he says so uh where what merit then have I acquired and Bodhidharma said, "No merit at all." He wasn't saying. You've with all that those things you've done, uh there's no merit you've acquired as as apart from having acquired merit. He's leaping out of the whole dichotomy. Yeah, and saying, Yes, look at it this way you've acquired no merit because the the emperor had certainly learned about all of this good deeds and so forth and uh, bodhidharma didn't want to see him clinging to that being attached to that so he took the other side there's always the two sides of reality yes uh I can say that there's this side of of emptiness of no-thingness and that's there's no There's no such thing as a single particle of merit from that side of the equation. But from the other side, yes, it seems believable that when we help others and we serve others and we sacrifice ourselves for others, then we are um, acquiring what we call merit, a good karma. This depends on which side you're looking at. And uh, Bodhidharma evidently felt that the emperor had seen enough of of the uh, merit side and wanted to pull the rug out from under him. But when he says, and Bodhidharma says, no merit at all, he's not just speaking half of the truth. It's the whole truth. Just as if he had said, Yeah, lots of merit. That would have been the whole truth. The the sad thing is that in the popular mind in, well, for sure, China, uh, people were... That's as far as they went. They just wanted to build up merit. And they... they didn't go the next step, which is to see through this whole business of merit. See the other side. That's practice. In ancient times, to to find one's way through uh, the whole paradigm of merit uh, meant becoming a monk or a nun. Otherwise, the idea was the popular idea was: well, your your best bet is just to uh, donate to the to the monasteries, support the monks and nuns, and then maybe next time around, in your next life. You'll be able to really pursue the Dharma, see the this two-fold nature of reality. Form is only emptiness, emptiness only form. We're so fortunate now in the West to ha- not have this path of true practice and realization, not have it outside the reach of householders, we know how difficult it is to, to practice uh, in, a, in a really concentrated way as householders. And we have so many responsibilities and complications in our lives. So it's, it's, it's tough. In a way, it's much harder than the monastic way. But uh, still... There it is. It's something we can do. It's not foreclosed to us. We don't have to content ourselves with acquiring merit. It's a great sea change in the accessibility of the Dharma to everyone, not just monks. As hard as it may be. And even in the difficulty of it, there's great the great Strength that we can develop through doing our best to keep this practice going in the midst of our complicated lives. Hakuin, the great Hakuin, who was himself a monk, said the, the strength we acquire by practicing in the world of activity, you could say as, as lay people, uh, is 10,000 times the strength we can acquire practicing. Uh, in a monastery. Still, that aside, those of us who have an affinity with monastic style practice, residential training, uh, will recognize that that's what we need to do. It's what I've done my whole adult life. Well, until as long as I was living here at the Zen Center. And uh, oh, it was, it was marvelous. It was tremendous blessing to have that opportunity. And then he brings up uh, some Buddhist psychology. He says, if you do not understand, if you are not liberated, the sixth consciousness possesses the seventh and the eighth. Let's, uh, let me just turn, without going off on too much of a tangent of what, what can be quite complicated aspect of Buddhist psychology. Um, let me just read from Zen Merging of East and West. Uh, I'd rather read from it I mean, I I have it pretty well down. I ought to, after all these years, um, but it's I can make it clear. I think by reading from uh, Roshi Kaplow's writing and this book of his about these the eighth level of eight levels of con- this are the eight modes. It's it a better word. The eight modes of consciousness. So the s- first six, I think you've heard plenty of times, is what we call the six senses. The, the five ordinary senses plus this the sense of uh, thinking or thought as the as the sixth uh, I'll read here from his his book together these six faculties, the sense faculties, comprise the individual empirical consciousness, this body mind that is born and dies. The seventh and eighth levels of consciousness do not perish with the death of the physical body. The seventh level is called manas uh, in Sanskrit. The seventh level is the persistent self-awareness consciousness. At this level, all sense data gathered at the first six levels, that is what we take in through our ears, our eyes, our nose, our brain, uh, are conveyed to this 8th level, the uh, storehouse consciousness. And, this, and in the form of seeds, uh, where every action, thought and sense impression is recorded moment after moment. This is very sobering to the degree that you can buy into this it means that everything we perceive and think about perceive through the five, first five senses and think about as the sixth gets filed away somewhere gets deposited in this storehouse consciousness two to sprout again someday when the conditions are ripe. The reason I have no trouble believing this is, well, largely because of Sashin experiences. That things things can arise in the mind during Sashin, especially in the depths of Sashin, that we have not thought about for years, for decades, can bubble up, a memory, something truly that we have not thought of forever. That seems pretty credible, that there's a, this some, some sense of everything going into storage. I'll read on. In a sense, the eighth level or storehouse of experiences is the basis of personality and character since it continuously seeds new actions, giving rise to different thoughts and varying behavior. But then these thoughts and behavior in turn change the quality of the storehouse consciousness as they are impressed upon it to become new seeds of action. Karma, which which really means action and reaction, karma develops as the ever-accumulating seed experiences in response to causes and conditions blossom forth as new actions, which are not only effects, but also causes of seeds. This, This Process, even while it is fragmented is continuous and endless Vasubandhu he's in our ancestral line Vasubandhu described it as a continuous sweep like a waterfall the seed brings about the present action the present action impresses itself on the seed the triangle is completed cause and effect are one Now, back to Bahadra that we just uh, set aside for a minute. Uh, he says, if you do not understand, if you're not liberated, the sixth consciousness, that is thoughts, possess the seventh. They take hold of that, that conveyor level. Uh, the, the conveyor is what conveys all of the thoughts and other things into the storehouse. It possesses the seventh and the eighth we we become possessed uh we fall under uh the the determination of our thoughts if you do understand however if you are liberated the eighth consciousness is without the sixth and seventh some of the most intelligent people in the last 2500 years have completely accepted this structure this um, scheme of the mind and um, it uh, makes a lot of sense to me so in, in 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 zen okay we hear we hear we see we feel we smell, we taste, and we have thoughts coming through the mind. And these don't need to be a problem. These don't need to generate more karma if we don't attach to them. It's 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 just the nature of our body-mind to take in all these things, including thoughts. The brain generates some level of thought activity as surely as our stomachs generate gastric juices. That happens. The whole problem comes when we get caught in these thoughts, when we cling to them. That's where all the difference is made. And then the next paragraph from Gunabhadra. Those who intend to be Buddhas, that is, of course he means those who uh, aspire to awakening, should first learn to pacify mind. Before mind is pacified, even good things are not good. So much the worse for evil things. When mind comes to rest, Neither good nor evil has any basis. It's because when the mind comes to rest, we see things as having no roots. Since coming to this country, he means China, I have not even seen people who cultivate the path, much much less anyone who has pacified mind. Cultivate is another word for practice. So he's saying, I haven't seen anyone who even practices Zen. Certainly not anyone who has um, brought the mind to stillness, to rest. Then he says, I'm turning the next page uh, just for a moment. He says, just now I spoke of pacifying mind. In brief, there are four kinds of mentality. First, the mentality that turns away from truth. This is the mentality of those who go through life as ordinary people. In other words, turning away from truth means uh, basically turning toward thoughts, living in one's thoughts and not seeing any way out of them. Second, the mentality that turns toward truth. This means loathing birth and death, and so seeking nirvana and going toward stillness. Loathing birth and death meaning seeing that no matter how much we may be able to escape from daily, the suffering of daily life, uh, eventually there is the end, our death. And recognizing that that is the worst of predicaments in a way, human predicaments. Third, third kind of mentality, the mind that enters truth, Uh, He says, though you cut off barriers to the path and reveal inner truth, subject and object are not yet nullified. This is the bodhisattva mentality. Um, Here, here, if I may kind of simplify it, uh, the idea that, that I'm here and you're there and I need to help you, which is a pretty high state. That's a pretty advanced state to orient toward helping others, but so long as it's based on "I'm the helper and you need help," then it's, it's at least slightly contaminated. Roshi Capello used to say, "The uh, bodhisattva—the reason a bodhisattva is just a notch below a Buddha." Is that bodhisattvas still have this notion, uh, as 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 admirable as it is, to of of subject and object? I'm helping you or them, whereas Buddhas, it's just effortless. There's no you're beyond self and other. You just respond to those in need without thinking of them as apart from you, and that's the fourth mentality. Here, the mind of truth, not mind outside truth, not truth outside mind. Truth is mind. And here, he's not talking just about our discursive mind that analyzes and categorizes and judges and evaluates. Mind with a capital M. Mind is nothing apart from mind, nothing outside mind. Truth is Is mind. One of the most famous and the shortest of koans is uh, where a monk asked Nansen, uh, What is Buddha? And Nansen said, This very mind is Buddha. He goes on, Mind is able to be everywhere equal. So it is called truth. Truth's awareness can illuminate everything. So it is called mind. Mind and truth are everywhere equal. So it is called Buddha mind, the mind of enlightenment. I'm going to go back to that paragraph where he begins, since coming to this country, I've not even seen anyone practicing the way, and certainly not anyone who has pacified mind. I often see people who go along creating karma, who have not merged with the path. Let me pause here too. In, in uh, classical Buddhism, the Dharma, you don't talk about creating good karma versus creating bad karma uh, it's It's either you're creating karma which binds you to the wheel of samsara or you're not creating karma it's not it's beyond good and bad. I often see people go along creating karma who have not merged with the path. Some are concerned with fame and reputation. Some act for the sake of profit and support. They operate with the mentality of self and others. They act with the attitude of jealousy. What is jealousy? It means to engender the mentality of resentment and ill-will when you see someone else cultivating the path, practicing, and reaching consummation in principle and practice so that many people offer support and give their allegiance. It means self-satisfied reliance on your own intelligence, not using it to overcome self. This is called jealousy. He seems to be addressing in particular people who are um, envious of those of attainment. Let me just go back for a minute to creating karma. This would be the what binds us to this, the, this the six realms of unenlightened existence so yes let's say um we are uh, we find ourselves in the realm of human uh, human realm world of uh of uh self-awareness and awareness of of uh dilemmas of every kind and uh we, By creating what we normally would say good karma, we reach a higher realm, What say the realm of uh, devas, the realm of great comfort and ease and privilege. Um, it's still in the realm of the, of, of the unenlightened existence, because even though we're creating good karma, so-called, uh, it's still karma. And then... Even, even more leading to suffering is uh, violating the precepts that drops us down out of the heavenly realm to a lower realm, again, of course, still karma, but to, to, to escape the six realms of unenlightened existence uh, is to go beyond cause and effect, see beyond cause and effect, Beyond creating and destroying beyond good and bad, so again the example of uh, bodhisattva uh, it's uh, by by doing acts of service community service, helping others um, this is this is maybe l- will lift us to a higher realm of unenlightened existence, but we're always vulnerable so long as we are on that level of rising or sinking, we're always uh, vulnerable to sinking. He continues, even if you scrupulously perform various practices day and night, cut off afflictions and clear away obstructions with this kind of attitude that is the one of jealousy or envy, barriers to the path arise one after another and you do not, you do not find peace and stillness. This is just called cultivating the path, that is practice, it is not called pacifying mind. He continues, even if you practice the six paramitas, expound the sutras, sit in meditation, and advance energetically practicing austerities, this is just called being good. It is not called Dharma practice. What is called Dharma practice is not irrigating the karmic field with water of desire, not planting the seeds of consciousness there, Those who understand reality do not see any difference between birth and death and nirvana or ordinary and holy. In other words, see the emptiness of all such discriminations, all such dichotomies. Objects and knowledge are not two. Inner truth and phenomena are fused real and conventional, are viewed as equal. Defilement and purity are one suchness. This uh, statement, real and conventional, so these are other words for the two sides that I mentioned earlier, the side of the, the absolute, um, the essence, the real, And then the other side is the the world of phenomena, of appearances, the conventional uh, understanding of reality. Buddhas and sentient beings are fundamentally equal and at one. And here, this is the the vocabulary that we run across all the time in Chinese uh, Buddhism, Buddhas being enlightened, and sentient beings being the so-called unenlightened, and seeing that fundamentally they're not two. Why? Because we are all endowed with this enlightened nature. is the great path. We could say the way, the Tao, is fundamentally omnipresent, perfectly pure, and basically existent. It is not attained from causes. There it is again. Hakuin's words, seeing into the oneness of cause and effect, beyond causation. Causation is also uh, you could say the, the side of of differentiation, of the conventional, the world of appearances, the world of, of uh, differences, of discriminations. The other side is the non-causal, beyond causation. It is like the sun hidden behind floating clouds. When the clouds are gone, the sun appears by itself. Another classical metaphor: the clouds, the moving clouds, is the side of the conventional or the world of appearances of form, differentiation, and the sun behind it. I think even a better one is this: the blue sky behind those clouds, the un, the the unchanging uh, beyond cause and effect. That sky, that blue sky eternal. When the clouds are gone, the sun appears by itself. The sky, the blue sky appears by itself. What's the use of any more learning or views? That's classic Zen teaching. We don't reach liberation by piling up knowledge. Why become involved in written or spoken words and come back again to the path of birth and death? Those who take verbal explanations and literary accounts as the path, covet fame and profit. They ruin themselves and ruin others. It is like polishing a mirror. When the dust on the surface has been totally removed, the mirror of itself is bright, and clear. As another favorite Zen analogy, dust on the mirror, polishing it, polishing the mirror you could say is the the side of of uh, phenomena of, of change uh practice just practice realization is seeing that there's neither mirror nor dust in the in the deepest sense and just to put a period on this it is through our efforts at becoming one with the practice we're working on, one with the questioning, one with the breath. it is that is how we see through the clouds to that blue sky, that realm of no mind, beyond thoughts. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.